This week takes us to Plano, Texas, where a mother's piety and mental illness merge, resulting in the murder of her daughter. This is episode 65 of Texas 1031. everyone. This is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. This week, I will be telling you all about the pretty infamous story of Dina Schlosser. Um, her case is pretty well known. I think it gets kind of lost in the jumble of Andrea Yates, Darlie Routier, and Deanna Laney, the latter of which Cassie actually covered in episode eight of the podcast. Episode eight. That's crazy. Um, I knew the high points of this case, but I never really knew the full details. So I figured maybe some of you all were kind of in the same boat and would like to hear about it in its entirety. I would like to also preface this with the fact that we are going to be talking about the impact that some of her religious practices and her beliefs had on her actions and her life. And I'm only really going to be semi nice about it. So if organized religion is your vibe, I get it. I grew up Southern Baptist. We're in the fucking Bible belt. You know, if you listen to me or and Cassie anyway, you probably aren't super hyped on religion. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But anyway, just wanted to put that uh, disclaimer out there. Feel free to skip this episode. Please don't write a nasty review saying that we're, you know, whatever against God and stuff. Thanks. So November 22nd, just a few days ago, marked 18 years since Dina murdered her 10-month-old daughter, Margaret. So let's get into what the fuck happened to Dina and possibly why she did what she did. So picture it. Plano, Texas, 2004. Been there, done that. I was a high school freshman, 2004, living in Plano slash Richardson. Literally there, truly. But enough about me. Let's keep talking about Dina. So born in 1969 in upstate New York, Dina Leitner suffered trauma at an early age. When she was only eight years old, she was diagnosed with hydrocephalus, a disease that comes from excess cerebrospinal fluid building up in the brain. If left untreated, hydrocephalus can interfere with brain function and eventually lead to death. In total, Dina underwent around seven to eight surgeries to implant shunts into her brain, heart, and abdomen, all before she was only 13 years old. Three of the surgeries took place when she was initially diagnosed, and the remainder occurred after she and her family moved to Houston for her stepfather's job. Although she survived the surgeries without any major injuries, the surgeries required Dina to shave her head, which led to merciless bullying from her classmates, which is just the worst, you know, if you... If you had shaved your head because you, you know, you were stupid and you cut all of your hair off weird, so your parents made you shave your head, then maybe I could see getting made fun of. But if you're essentially bald due to uncontrollable illness and you're made fun of, let's just hope all of those people who made fun of you started balding prematurely or died of brain tumors. Yeah, cool. Glad we're on the same page. Nevertheless, Dina persisted through high school and eventually returned to her home state of New York and went on to study at Marist College in Poughkeepsie. While at Marist, she met John Schlosser, and the two were friends for quite some time. When Dina was a sophomore, John finally asked her out on an official date after knowing one another for about a year. 
By 1990, the two were married, and in 1991, Dina graduated from Marist, earning her bachelor's degree in psychology. John, however, would never complete college, despite enjoying the computers and technology-based courses. By 2001, John and Dina expanded their family by having two daughters, Brianna, who at the time was five, and Kelsey, who was two. The Schlossers moved to Fort Worth, Texas, where John began a thriving business in the fledgling computer science industry, making around 100 grand a year. So not fucking bad. John and Dina were enjoying a relatively normal life in Fort Worth when a neighbor suggested that they take a look into attending the Water of Life Church, which like this person should be crucified. Um no religious pun intended. Sorry about that one. Um, so a little backstory here. The Water of Life Church began in November of 1980 and was run by a name or is continued to be ran by a man named Doyle Davidson, Forensic Files, a veterinarian turned preacher who claimed that God spoke to him in visions and all that fun stuff. Doyle had his vet practice in McKinney, Texas, a town just north of Plano for many years. In the later 1960s and early 1970s, Doyle decided God had asked him to become a preacher and wanted him to begin to minister to his community. For the next 10 years, until the Water of Life Church was founded, Doyle poured over the Bible day in and day out. His wife and daughter were placed far in the back of Doyle's mind, and he really only worked as needed to assist the family. God was Doyle's only true priority. The new church claimed to be non-denominational and very kind of go with the flow. I feel like a lot of people have been to a church like that. There's, you know, no judgment. There's no actual, you know, title. It's just kind of come as you are sort of vibes. If the sermon, you know, if it was going well, Doyle would keep on talking without concern for time or schedule. And despite the church's vibrant beginnings, ex-members would later state that the church actually mirrored a cult. In hindsight, this sentiment became apparent during 1981 when Doyle believed a dark presence or spirit he called Jezebel had taken over the city of Plano and its citizens. He even believed that his own wife had been taken over by this dark spirit. Despite the demise of his marriage due to his wife's being possessed by this Jezebel and all, um, Doyle never filed for the divorce. He never made her move out of their home, and he continued to fund her lifestyle. What was the catch, you ask? Well, in return for his wife being possessed by this dark spirit, in 1987, Doyle was able to become involved with a much younger female church member named Lisa Statton, who was already married, by the way. Gasp. I know. However, just as Doyle and his first wife, her her name was Patty, by the way, Um, Just like Doyle and Patty were never legally divorced or separated, Doyle and Lisa were never legally married in the state of Texas. It was literally just a weird fantasy that many men in religious power similar to Doyle had successfully attempted to make into reality. This relationship between Lisa and Doyle was not common knowledge, and the majority of the church was unaware that Lisa and Doyle were fucking on the side. Many church members claimed at the time that they just believed anything and everything Doyle said because he was just so sure of himself and confident. Essentially, it was easy for them to look past any bad feelings or, you know, strange moments because Doyle was just so fucking cool, I guess. 
Eventually, the Water of Life Church became such a success that many of Doyle's sermons were televised every week where he was able to reach new members like Dina and John Schlosser. That name, that last name is kind of hard, Schlosser. Um, you want to say like sloshed, but you have to remember like the CH is there, so it, it trips you up. You have to um, focus. At the time, remember, the Schlossers lived in Fort Worth and the church was located in Plano. So despite this 100-mile trip to and from the church, the family made the commitment and became members of the Water of Life cult. While visiting Dina, John, and the children, Dina's mother, Connie, and her stepfather, Mick, attended church with the family. Connie and Mick were not convinced of Doyle's teachings and found the church and its values quite disturbing. Connie also noted that John had actually lost his job recently, but the family seemed completely unbothered or unworried about their finances because, quote, God would provide, end quote. However, due to their money troubles, Dina and John were given around $35,000 from Dina's family to get them back on their feet. It was later determined that a large portion of the $35,000 went to the church. Connie became increasingly worried when she found out that the family was attending church not only on Sundays, but upwards to five to seven times a week. In addition, when she brought over some cough syrup for Brianna during one visit, Dina dropped the medication in the trash, stating, quote, We don't use this. We use prayer. Nausea. Fed up with the treatment of her daughter and now granddaughters, Connie decided in a surprise move that it was time to confront Doyle Davidson. In return for her call for concern, Doyle simply told Connie that she was infected with the ever-popular Jezebel spirit and that previous women who had been in opposition to him had been known to disappear. Literally, shut the fuck up, Doyle. You are not that cool. Regardless of Connie and Mick's attempts to help Dina and John emotionally, mentally, and financially, the Schlossers' home in Fort Worth would go into foreclosure in the fall of 2002. The couple packed up their small family and moved over 100 miles away to Plano, Texas into a two-bedroom apartment on the 1700 block of Coit Road to be closer to the church they had been so blindly dedicated to. First of all, who's approving a family of four with zero income to move into this apartment? That's what I really want to know, but that's just me. As expected, things progressively get worse in the Schlosser home after moving to Plano. During yet another visit to Texas, Connie attended church with Dino on Sunday. Supposedly, during the sermon, Doyle claims that Connie verbally attacked him, so he began to lay hands on her in an attempt to perform an exorcism. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I'm 98% sure that exorcisms can be only can only be performed by Catholic priests, but sure, Doyle, I'll go with it. So during this exorcism, Dina believes Doyle has rid Connie of the Parkinson's disease that she has been afflicted with for many years now. In turn, because of this, Dina steals Connie's Parkinson's medication since, you know, she won't need it anymore, right? Instead, when Dina drops Connie off at the airport, Connie goes into complete paralysis due to the lack of her medication and ends up sitting in her own shit because she shit her fucking pants for hours until someone got a clue and checked on her. Luckily, Connie had some spare medication in her bag that she forgot about and actually made a decent recovery. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, 
And like I said, you guys, I grew up in a Southern Baptist home. I know about evangelicalism and I know I had friends that went to different churches that spoke in tongues, things like that. No shade, no tea, but again, can you imagine your own mother shitting herself and not being able to recover because you literally stole her medication because you thought that your pastor fucking healed her? Come on. Dina's unpredictable behavior significantly increased over time, venturing into manic and isolating tendencies. By this point, Dina would rarely let her children see Connie or Mick when they came to visit, and she consistently canceled social plans when she had made them. During another visit, which like, God bless Connie and Mick, because I feel like they're always trying to help and they're always there and flights aren't cheap. Like it's, it's not easy. I mean, traveling with Parkinson's like in your, your, older, like, I mean, God bless. Right. So during another visit, Connie had a moment of vulnerability with Dina telling her that she believed that Dina had really changed as a person and a mother, but it wasn't for the better. In response, Dina simply slouched down in her seat closing her eyes, repeating the mantra, God is great, God is merciful, over and over, never acknowledging her mother's concern. Like what blissful ignorance, you know what I mean? By the time Dina was ready to give birth to her third daughter, Margaret, in early 2004, she and John had truly passed the point of no return regarding the Water of Life Church. So while I did read an article stating John refused to let Dina give birth in a hospital, rather opting for a midwife and a home birth. I really don't think that is that uncommon or incredibly worrisome today. I did see some documentation that the midwife was concerned because it was, you know, her third pregnancy and it may, due to her age, she may have wanted, should have gone to to a hospital for the birth. But I don't know. While it still may seem, you know, pretty taboo to many mothers and fathers, I think that having a midwife or a doula is just fine and totally normal. Modern medicine and hospitals aren't for everyone. But um, however, the Schlossers had no insurance. So I think that that was also why they went with the uh, the home birth route. You know what I mean? And just as planned, Margaret or Maggie, as she was called, was born in the Schlosser's apartment on January 9th, 2004. Can you imagine being the people that had to rent this place after them? The like residual haunting that could be there of this, this pissed off baby. Amazing. Unfortunately, within moments of giving birth, Dina was making some startling statements. Dina evidently believed she had given birth to twins, a boy and a girl, But the boy had died at birth and had already returned to God. To make matters worse, the day after Maggie's birth, as Dina was reading the Bible, the word cut jumped off the page. Dina slit her own wrists and John found her in the bathroom holding Maggie with blood covering the floor. John never took Dina to the hospital that day. I didn't think to, he would later say. Instead, he put band-aids on her wrists, and the couple prayed about her condition until she improved. Nice. Five days later, though, things escalated when Dina heard characters from the movie The Little Mermaid talking to her. John, who had finally become employed, was at work, and Brianna was at school. Kelsey, now five years old, was home watching the film. Now, not only were the characters speaking to Dina, but the television itself began laughing at her. 
Dina burst out of the apartment, running down the street with Kelsey chasing after her. A short time later, police dispatch got a call about a woman standing at an intersection with her arms raised above her towards the sky. This was about two miles from the Schlosser's apartment. She made it two fucking miles. What the fuck? Officer Tony Dickerson was the first to arrive on the scene. When he tried talking to Dina, she just, she shut down. She began screaming. That was all he could get out of her. It was determined that Dina had suffered three miscarriages prior to having Brianna and Kelsey. And the birth of Margaret in 2004 sent her into deep postpartum illness. Dina spent the night at the Green Oaks Hospital in Dallas, a mental health facility. She was there diagnosed with postpartum psychosis, an illness far more serious than postpartum depression. But John didn't see it that way. He thought the best place for Dina was with him at the apartment. You know, you can't have those medical bills piling up now, can we, John? God forbid Dina gets treatment, right? What worried John more, in fact, was that he believed Dina's religious talk was being confused with psychosis. So to clear things up, um, he gave the hospital Doyle's number as a reference, you know, perfect, excellent. Here, call this guy. He'll explain that my wife isn't crazy. She is just obsessed with this hypocritical deviant. It's fine. It's great. No problem here. And with that, uh, Green Oaks released Dina 23 hours after admitting her, but John still had to deal with child protective services. The agency viewed Dina as a priority one case, one of the highest importance. What troubled CPS more than Dina out walking Kelsey and leaving Maggie at home was the suicide attempt or psychotic moment of self-harm that John didn't take seriously. P.S. Dina didn't report to CPS or the Green Oaks Hospital how the television had talked to her. It, it was simply just the fact that she had walked out of the house, leaving her children behind and cutting her wrist days prior. So they were unaware that she was hallucinating. The agency, luckily, forbade Dina from having unsupervised contact with her children for two months. This meant John's mother had to move in from New York to assist with the children since, you know, John is an incompetent piece of shit father and husband and has to replace Dina's spot up Doyle's ass in the interim, so he'll be busy. CPS also planned nearly daily visits to the Schlosser home, some of them unannounced. And caseworkers referred Dina to Life Path Systems, which provided mental health services for the indigent and uninsured in Collin County. Dina also went on antipsychotic medication. Literally, this is the only time we can say praise Jesus, hallelujah, in this episode. Thank you, CPS, for doing your job. Quote, the medication was an issue, Suzanne Arnold would later say in court. Suzanne was the CPS caseworker who checked in on Dina every weekday after the episode. Dina told Suzanne she worried about the damage the drugs might do to her breast milk. But really, as court records would later show, she wanted off medication because water of life taught medicine was evil. Yeah. I, like, I agree big pharma is real and medications, like many medications aren't great for you, et cetera, et cetera. But like, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Crazy, crazy concepts. Um. Still, though, the drugs worked, shocker, for a few months, and Dina seemed to be doing well. Things had kind of turned around. Her hallucinations had stopped, and even John's mother returned to New York around mid-February. 
Beginning in March of 2004, CPS only had to check in about twice a week. But for Dina and John, her progress proved to them that she didn't need the drugs. They were going to church as often as ever, and the prayer was obviously working. They pleaded with Dr. Nasir Zaki, the psychiatrist from LifePath who oversaw Dina's prescriptions. He allowed her off the medication so long as Dina checked in with him monthly, and CPS reported her progress to LifePath. This plan actually worked for a time, but soon enough, it all came crashing down. The descent began in May, and over the next six months, Dina suffered a series of delusional episodes. When a boy came to the apartment asking for water, Dina thought he was Jesus. She feared a neighbor's dog would eat her, much as dogs ate Jezebel in Kings 2-9. When CPS caseworker Jamie Burris visited the Schlosser's home on May 18th, Dina looked different, depressed. Dina said she was fine, she was just tired, and this was true. Dina hadn't slept in three days, reading the Bible feverishly at night. She told Jamie none of this, but after she left, Dina called her back to the apartment. Jamie claimed Dina told her, quote, she said she was disappointed with herself and wanted to please God, end quote. Not knowing what was going on, Jamie Burris gave Dina her cell phone number and told her to call if anything happened. But Dina never did. That night, Dina rose from bed and checked herself into the Plano Medical Center two blocks from the apartment complex. A short time after Dina was admitted at 4 a.m., an attendant found her on the bathroom floor, growling. Once more, though, doctors released her after John persuaded them that the best place for Dina was at home. The staff at the Plano Medical Center had given her antipsychotic medication, and John promised to visit LifePath during work hours as soon as Dina could be released. The Schlossers did go to LifePath that day as promised. They told Dr. Zaki that Dina needed to be put back on the antipsychotic medication, but they never told him why, which is just insane to me. Like, in what world would a doctor not insist on some sort of reason or history before putting her back on the antipsychotic? That just seems a bit sketchy to me. Also, you know, she was labeled a high-priority CPS case. She has a significant history of mental illness and self-harm. Who the fuck doctors are being consistently persuaded by John fucking Schlosser to let her go home and not stay in a hospital? Is it because this motherfucker is a medical professional and knows best? No. Is it because they have no insurance so the doctors take pity on the family and let them leave because a hospital stay is too expensive? Maybe. But again, in what world does a patient's financial state or health insurance status take precedent over their care and diagnosis? Who knows, though? I'm not in healthcare, and maybe I'm just being naive, and that really is just how it is sometimes. In addition to never telling Dr. Zaki about Dina's most recent hospital stint and her delusions and hallucinations, they also never told Mick and Connie either. Dina called every day, numerous times a day, but she never told her mother or her stepfather, who has his PhD in counseling, by the way, about the suicide attempt or checking herself into the hospital or really much else. The only thing Dina really talked about was Doyle. What was alarming to us, Mick says, is that we sensed there was a franticness on her part to bring us into the fold so we would not be excluded by her. Mick felt he and Connie were next on the ever-growing list of people Dina had blacklisted due to them not sharing the same beliefs as her. 
but they knew they were never going to agree with Dina and John about Doyle. Because specifically, around this time, the church seemed to just be getting stranger. Just for some fun facts here, on September 9th, 2004, Doyle knocked on the front door of Lisa Statton's house. Remember her? In the years since 1987, their affair or marriage or whatever the fuck you want to call it had continued, but recently Lisa's interest in it had waned. No way. That evening, she refused to let Doyle in, but J.R. Statton, Lisa's husband, and one of the 12 apostles at the Water of Life Church did let Doyle in. Doyle then headed upstairs where Lisa was, threw her on a couch, and began choking her. Doyle said he was casting out Lisa's demons. I can't even get through that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he was casting out Lisa's demons. J.R. heard Lisa yelling, ran upstairs, wrestled Doyle off of her, ducking a punch in the process, and called 911. In what world do you let your pastor go upstairs to talk to your wife? That's just weird. Regardless if he's a pastor, in what world do you let a guy go upstairs to talk to your wife? Hmm. When the cops came a little before midnight, they noticed redness around Lisa's chest and throat, and they smelled alcohol on Doyle's breath. He was arrested for public intoxication. Kill me now. Um, after Doyle bonded out of jail, he felt he was wrong to have appointed JR as an apostle. Freed of the church and its responsibilities, JR took Lisa and their children and went into hiding. They never pressed charges, and to this day, former church members and authorities don't know the whereabouts of the Staten family. What a cringy life in marriage. Um, just thinking about that. You know the meme of like, oh, you're laying in bed and can't go to sleep because you're thinking about that one thing you did 15 years ago and, and like are just so embarrassed you can't fall back asleep? Yeah, <clears throat> I think this couple wins first place for that. Like imagine trying to go to sleep and remembering you fucked a married misogynistic creeper for 17 years while you were also married because you thought he was so cool that God told him medication was bad. Yikes. Or even worse, imagine that scenario, but you're the husband, you're JR. You allowed it to happen and probably blew Doyle Davidson too. Like I would never sleep again, you know? So two months after Doyle's arrest for his public intoxication slash violent domestic, essentially, with Lisa, it still troubled Dina. The police were wrong, just like Doyle said. She told John on Friday, November 19th, that she was driving to the police station to defend Doyle. John thought better of it. No point in stirring up a debate over an old case. But Dina was adamant. In truth, though, she had been acting strange the whole week. The previous Sunday, Dina had gone to church with her neighbor and friend, Carolyn Thomas. On the drive home, Dina started hissing. She wouldn't quit. Stop that, Carolyn said, and began to pray for Dina. (laughs) According to court testimony, Carolyn wondered then if Dina had stopped taking her medication. Wow, Carolyn, you know, I don't know. You think so? Yeah, she had. Uh, Dina stopped taking her meds in July when LifePath screwed up paperwork and literally incorrectly told the Schlossers that they couldn't receive the drugs unless they paid for them in full. And they couldn't, and they just never bothered to clear up the mistake. So CPS had closed its case in October. The ever-haunting 
clerical error strikes again. Around the night of the hissing incident, let's call it, in November, Dina had actually heard a chainsaw going and thought that um, Jesus was outside building an ark. She took Maggie and walked outside looking for the noise. This article has the audacity to write, she apparently never found it. The night after the hissing incident, Dina talked with Carol and Thomas again about spirits jumping from one person to the other. Carolyn told her to put her mind on something else, quote, pure like Jesus, end quote. Wait, but Doyle can talk about spirits all he wants, but Dina can't? That's confusing, huh? And then that Friday, the 19th, we're circling back here, Dina implored John to take her to the police station in an effort to defend Doyle against his public intoxication charge or whatever that was. Instead, John took Dina to work with him so she wouldn't be alone. He didn't notify CPS or LifePath about Dina's behavior, but he did have a sit down with his wife and Doyle that weekend. Doyle told Dina she shouldn't get involved with the police, and that seemed to placate her. Perfect solution. That Sunday, the 21st of November, Dina said something very odd. Big surprise. According to court documents and testimony, as she was getting the children ready for church, Dina dressed 10-month-old Maggie in white. She said she wanted Doyle to marry the baby. John convinced his wife to put another outfit on the child, but he again did not notify LifePath or CPS. After church, Dina said she wanted to, quote, give her baby to God, end quote. John told her she was just confused. Again, John didn't notify anyone. Instead, the Schlossers prayed about it and went to bed. The next morning, on November 22nd, John told Dina to listen to recorded hymns. The singing usually soothed her. He took the older girls to school and tried calling Dina at the apartment about an hour later. She didn't pick up. According to court testimony and documents, that morning, Dina was convinced that God wanted Maggie. God wanted Maggie and her to go to heaven. It was laundry day at the Schlosser home. Clothes and towels were piled high in the bathroom sink and on the mattress in Dina and John's bedroom. But Dina didn't concern herself with that now. With the sound of hymns filling the apartment, Dina went to the kitchen. She passed five pictures of Maggie on the refrigerator door and found the knife set. She took out the biggest one she could find, which had a nine-inch blade. She went to Maggie's crib held the knife over the baby's left shoulder, and began cutting. Court records would later show Maggie had more than 50 marks on her left cheek, marks where the knife's tip punctured the skin as Dina sawed deeper into her shoulder. Blood spattered the crib's rails, but Dina kept cutting, cutting through the left shoulder blade and clavicle, severing the baby's arm. Dina then started on the right one, Maggie's right cheek was later found to have only a few marks like the ones left on her left cheek, meaning she stopped struggling at that point. In all likelihood, Maggie Schlosser was dead before Dina cut off her other arm. The apartment, now silent except for the music praising God, Dina turned the knife on herself 
going to work on her own left shoulder. For whatever reason, though, after sawing into her own muscle, she stopped. And for whatever reason, she answered the ringing phone. It was John. Quote, she had a tone of voice I had never heard before. She said she had hurt Maggie. She said she had cut off her arms. End quote. But John didn't believe her. <laughs> Big surprise here. Rather than calling 911 next, John called Doyle. Doyle told him to call someone who could go over and check on Dina. He recommended Carolyn Thomas, since again, she is her next door neighbor. So John called her, and she called Dina. And while Carolyn was in disbelief, someone at the daycare center where she worked at, someone who overheard Carolyn's conversation, finally called 911. Are you fucking kidding me? That's what everyone should be saying right now. It took, let's count them, Dina, John, Doyle, Carolyn, and random coworker, five fucking people to get police on the way. Everyone involved in this needs to be committed. Good Lord. Officer David Tilly was the first to respond to the Schlosser's apartment. Dina answered the door, dazed, uh, blood on the left side of her neck, her shirt and jeans. She clutched the knife to her chest. Evidently, pieces of flesh were still on it. Officer Tilly took it from her, sat her down, and went looking for the baby. He found Maggie in her crib. The song, He Touched Me, played from the stereo. Again, Kill me now. I bet her other daughters wished they had cut off their arms at this point, too. My God. Dina told Officer Tilly she cut off her baby's arms because, quote, I felt like I had to, end quote. As more police and fire personnel filed in, Dina chanted, praise God. Thank you, God. That evening in jail, Dina made a list of which people she would allow to visit her. Bob Nicholas, the former stepfather whom Dina referred to as her dad, who saw Dina through seven brain surgeries and who drove 16 hours straight from North Carolina to be in Plano after the murder, did not make Dina's list. Neither did her mother Connie nor Connie's husband Mick. The only people on Dina's list were John Schlosser and Doyle Davidson. Dina Schlosser pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to capital murder charges. Three psychologists testified that Dina was insane at the time of the murder and remains insane to this day. Dr. Joseph Black, chief psychologist at North Texas State Hospital in Vernon, said the murder, quote, would have been preventable with appropriate treatment, end quote. Very good observation there. Doyle Davidson took the stand and said he barely knew the Schlossers. He also told the jury that medicine is evil and that mental illness is demonic possession. Um, yeah. So, long story short, in February of 2006, the case ended in a mistrial. It was retried again in April of that year by Collin County District Judge Chris Oldner. Uh, he had presided over the first trial as well. In the second trial, neurologists presented new evidence that Dina had an inoperable brain tumor that may have contributed to her hallucinations, but that was still a big possibility. Not confirmed. Even with the new brain tumor theory, the defense and the state both had something to prove in court yet again, and that was if Dina knew what she was doing was wrong or not. Defense attorney William Schultz said Dina was suffering from postpartum psychosis that caused her to snap suddenly on several occasions. 
screaming, growling, and hissing at people in the months before Margaret's death. Quote, she didn't see it coming. Normally, Dina is a sweet woman. She cares. She has compassion. End quote. Prosecutor Curtis Howard said that while Dina had mental problems, she did know right from wrong when she killed her daughter. She was able to know that something was wrong when she voluntarily committed herself to the Plano Medical Center in 2004 after stopping her antipsychotic medication. In the state's opinion, Dina had discussed giving Maggie to God and to Doyle many times in the past and was clearly capable of neglect and harm to herself and her children. While her actions may have been because of mental illness, the prosecution believed Dina still knew that what she was doing was wrong and it was harmful. Leslie Hunt, executive director of the Postpartum Resource Center of Texas, who testified during Dina's trial, said women suffering from postpartum psychosis or severe depression after childbirth sometimes fill their minds with religious verse. Quote, the conscious isn't there, Hunt said. The person who was able to judge from right and wrong, that person is not there. These women who commit these crimes are sometimes under delusions that they are saving their child's soul. God told them to do it. They're saving their child from the devil. End quote. One out of 10 new mothers suffers from postpartum depression, and one in 1,000 suffers postpartum psychosis. An onset occurs shortly after birth, according to Leslie Hunt. The judge relied on evidence he had heard during the first trial, obviously, and among other things, psychiatrists said Dina Schlosser suffered severe mood swings and religious hallucinations. I think that's very apparent. Psychologist David Self testified that Dina told him about a disturbing news story she had seen. The news story concerned a boy who was mauled by a lion, and she interpreted it as a sign of the coming apocalypse. After seeing this, she believed that God wanted her to cut off her baby's arms, as well as her own arms, and her own head, and give them to God. As mentioned, Dina's first trial ended in a mistrial after jurors deadlocked 10-2 to in favor of the same finding, not guilty by reason of insanity. If she had been found guilty, she would have been sent to prison for life. Now, in April of 2006, a jury deliberated only a few minutes before deciding Dina Schlosser was mentally incompetent to stand trial, or in other terms, not guilty by reason of insanity, and she was committed to the North Texas State Hospital in Vernon. Before Dina was transferred to the facility for treatment, she called Mick from the Collin County Jail. She told him Doyle had asked to come and speak to her. Mick said Dina shouldn't allow Doyle to visit her at jail or in the hospital. Mick then told her of the messages Doyle had put on his website, saying the devil worked through Dina against his ministry. Dina seemed puzzled that Doyle would even say that. She responded, stating, quote, I still love Doyle, end quote. While in the Vernon, Texas facility, she befriended none other than Andrea Yates a Texas woman who murdered her five children, and they struck up a friendship. The two women, um, Andrea, who drowned her five children in a bathtub, and Dina, they became roommates at the Maple Unit of the North Texas State Hospital. Dina said, quote, she is almost my identical personality. I think we'll be friends forever. I've only known her for a short period of time, but I believe the feeling is mutual. She probably thinks that same thing, end quote. 
Dina again uh, said, quote, we talk about our past, we talk about our memories, our fun memories, the things that our kids did, end quote. With the support of her family, Dina agreed to be interviewed several times by phone by the Dallas Morning News. That's where those quotes primarily come from. And um, Andrea, on the other hand, did not want to be interviewed. She did not come to the phone. But her ex-husband, Rusty Yates, who regularly visited Andrea at the hospital in Vernon, said that Dina had become a close friend. Randy commented, quote, hopefully they can help each other through the long recovery process, end quote. Conversations between the women often revolved around their young daughters, Mary Yates, who was six months old, and obviously Maggie Schlosser, who was 10 months old when they died. Connie and Mick said Dina once tearfully called after talking with Andrea Yates, stating, quote, they'd talk a lot about Mary and Maggie. They were feeling guilty, remorseful, and sad, end quote. The women had much in common. Both were married. They were stay-at-home moms who followed, you know, out of the mainstream religious leaders. Both suffered from postpartum depression and psychosis after the birth of their daughters. Dina is again quoted stating, I had delusions that were going on that I just didn't understand, but I believed them. I thought I was doing the right thing, end quote. During her short stint at the North Texas State Hospital, Dina claimed she eventually hoped to reconcile with her surviving daughters. She had written her daughters a letter a week since her arrest, telling the girls how much she loved and missed them, but she's waiting to mail them until the girls are ready to read them. Dina told the Dallas Morning News, quote, I'm willing to wait. I'll wait as long as I have to. I'll wait for the rest of my life, she said. I love them dearly. My kids are my world, and they always will be, end quote. Subsequently, John Schlosser filed for divorce from Dina and filed for and ultimately obtained custody of their surviving daughters, Brianna and Kelsey. However, before he could regain custody, John Schlosser had to commit to allowing a family member to live in the home with him and the children. As the Texas CPS felt that he didn't do enough to protect his children from his clearly disturbed wife. As part of their divorce agreement, Dina was prohibited from having contact with John or their daughters ever again. So much for reuniting with them after all, I guess. In 2008, Dina was released to an outpatient facility. She was ordered to be on birth control, take her antipsychotic medications, see a therapist, and not have any unsupervised contact with children. However, she was recommitted to an inpatient facility just two years later in 2010 after neighbors found her wandering around in the early hours of the morning, dazed and confused. Another two years later, in 2012, Dina, now using her maiden name of Leitner, was discovered working at a Walmart in Plano, Texas. When the news media discovered her whereabouts, it became a sensation, and within hours of the report airing, Dina was fired. As to why the state cleared Dina to mix with the general population, Department of State Health Services officials say patients are thoroughly assessed before a judge grants permission for their work release. According to former Dallas County prosecutor Toby Shook, he stated, quote, the crime happened in Collin County and she has the same rights as everyone else, though the judge will always retain jurisdiction. 
just like you might have a relative committed that's become mentally unbalanced. If they prove to be dangerous, it's the same criteria in this case, he said. Primarily, what a judge has to rely on are the doctors that are taking care of the person and any other experts that can give reports and testimony at a hearing. Toby Shook said it's understandable why some would feel uneasy about Dina's employment. Quote, you have a horrible, horrible crime that occurred. You naturally want that person brought to justice or locked up for the rest of their lives. But that person is suffering from a mental disease. They weren't acting in the right mind. So we've reached this compromise in the law where if they're found not guilty, they're not legally responsible. But a judge retains jurisdiction so that hopefully society can be protected from something like this happening again. End quote. The state of Texas said the goal for patients in mental care facilities is for them to get better. So as they progress, they are given opportunities to reintegrate with society. Toby Shook said because Dina was found not guilty, she still has freedom. But a judge, again, will always determine how much. When it comes to Dina being fired from Walmart, I found a Dallas Observer article written in 2012 by, I think you pronounce it, Jim Schutz, um, soon after Dina was spotted working. And this article makes a fair and quite candid point. Quote, Hating people for being crazy is part and parcel of the problem. Then we feel justified in doing less to help them. Then they wander around downtown crazy until they flip out and do something terrible again. Then we hate them again and rationalize not helping them. How is that a winning formula? The article continues stating, quote, The person who put all of this the best way may be Kimberly Bigler Burnett of Frisco, a commenter on the WFAA website that originally publicized the image of Dina at Walmart, who said, quote, I think it's unchristian to deprive her of her livelihood and to continue her life. Just having the knowledge of what she did to her child will be with her for the rest of her life, no matter what judge or jury or what people say. If everyone, including the ones who voiced their views on getting Walmart to fire her, would voice it for mental health facilities here in the U.S., perhaps she could have been helped when she was having her mental issues. Her child could have been saved. End quote. Continuing with Jim's article, he says, yeah, maybe. Certainly taunting schizophrenics and tossing them out on the street is not making anybody's babies safer. At the very least, it would seem like keeping Dina Schlosser stable is the safer course. There has been balancing coverage elsewhere since then, quoting shrinks about how damaging it's going to be to toss this lady out of her job abruptly and send her back to some shit apartment to stare at her medicine bottles. You get a sense of how much effort it takes for Dina Schlosser to get up in the morning, push back her demons, and trudge off to work. This lady's got demons that make most of our demons look like little Girl Scouts. We need to leave this poor person the hell alone. The proper response, when that nosy customer spied her at Walmart, would have been to reach out, touch her on the sleeve, and say, You look wonderful. I'm so glad you have a good job. Scary people. They are always with us. What are we going to do about it? How do we think hating them makes anything better? End quote. As of December 2020, Dina Schlosser was ordered to remain committed to a state hospital. 
Judge Andrea Thompson confirmed that she has religious delusions when she's not on antipsychotic medication and that it's better for all involved if she remains in the state of Texas's round-the-clock care. Members who have left the Water of Life cult say its doctrines amount to brainwashing. Some fear consequences for having left the fold altogether. One former member has organized a support group at a Garland church for ex-Water of Lifers struggling to escape its grip. While I don't think there is provable evidence that Doyle Davidson had anything to do with the murder of Margaret Schlosser, I do think that his message and brainwashing, like they said, is real. And it had an even more profound effect on lonely, lost, and mentally ill people looking for answers and a purpose. And that is the murder of Margaret Slosher and the tragic life of her mother, Dina Schlosser. I I don't really have enough questions and theories to maybe warrant a full section dictated to them, but um, I do think that John Schlosser should have received some sort of punishment for the complete ignorance and avoidance of his wife's mental health issues and struggles. I think he should have been held accountable for not relaying anything to CPS or to her doctors. I think that he is 100% partially responsible for Margaret's death in the long run because he actively ignored the need for medical help for his wife and just said, let's pray about it. That's pure fucking negligence. He knew his wife was losing it the weekend before she dismembered her baby. And all he did was take her to work with him so she wouldn't be alone. And in return, he got custody of Brianna and Kelsey. To me, that's just that's just not justice. I think at the end of the day, though, Maggie is probably better off and is lucky to have avoided a life with Dina and John as parents. I also think that this case was just so gunked up with religious bullshit and mental illness that I'm not qualified to comment on. So there is that. I cut the questions and theories short simply for that reason alone. Um, But yeah, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions or theories or comments on what the fuck happened here, please reach out to me on social media or email. And um, yeah, I will be back with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.